This is Minds Worth Meeting from Stern Strategy Group, a podcast where we talk with some of the top thought leaders in the world, from business leaders and technology analysts. For the first time really in history, technologies of many, many different types are getting exponentially cheaper. That is double digit percentages cheaper every single year. To academics and researchers. Language is really one of the most sophisticated tools that we have to accomplishing self-expression. The sentences we speak and the ones we choose not to. We welcome a new Mind Worth meeting in each episode. Here you'll find accessible, down-to-earth conversations about some of the most important topics of the day with the experts and leaders who are the top authorities in their fields. And now, here's a Mind's Worth meeting. Welcome to another episode of Minds Worth Meeting. Today, we're talking to Reed Blackman, author of the book, Ethical Machines. You're the founder and CEO of Virtue, a digital ethical risk consultancy. You advise the Canadian government on their federal AI regulations, and you were also a founding member of EY's AI Advisory Board and a senior advisor to the Deloitte AI Institute. So I'm guessing you have a lot of free time. Tons. (laughs) And I have two kids. (laughs) That means I have no time. That means I have no time. Well, I appreciate you making time for us. My pleasure. Uh, So to jump in, your book, Ethical Machines, came out just about a year ago. And AI really came into the public view November, December, thereabouts. Yeah. Ethical concerns starting to come up. Do you think in that period of time, have the ethical concerns gotten more urgent or is it just that AI is more public now than it was? Uh, It's both. You know, one of my one of my clients, uh, senior executive at a Fortune 500 company put it nicely and uh, sort of more dramatically than I would have put it actually they said something like well look we don't have any fires right now but we feel like everyone's now holding a flamethrower okay and so mm-hmm. we need to figure out what to do about that and so yeah the the issues have become more urgent not simply because it's pushed its way into public consciousness but because AI is so much more accessible now than it was before you know before you know you had some sort of low code or no code AI solutions but not they, they weren't widely used across enterprise but now when you come to some Something like a chat GPT or a Bing or a Bard. Now everyone in the organization has access to it and has a sense of how to use it. And so a lot of people who were, if they weren't paying attention before, are certainly paying attention now. Yeah. So when companies start using these, and I, I would think a lot of them want to jump on the bandwagon, don't want to get left behind. Yeah. What do you think they're missing when they're just plugging it in? Well, the good thing is that a lot of the organizations that I've spoken with and worked with, they know that there's stuff that they don't know. No, they know there's things to be nervous about, which is nice because the alternative is, oh, we didn't even know that there are things to be nervous about. But the press, you know, has in some ways the press has not done a great job because they raise um, issues like the existential risk to humanity from AI, which I think is one bogus and two, it's not the main concern for a corporate leader in their capacity as a corporate leader. I mean, for instance, let's say it does pose an existential human risk. There's not much that the chief data officer of a Fortune 500 company that's not a tech company that's building this stuff is going to do to hasten that or to stop it. So a lot of the talk around the ethical risks of AI have not really been focused on, okay, so what do business leaders need to do about this sort of thing? But there's a good sense among business leaders that at least privacy is a major concern. There's probably less of an awareness around bias in, say, large language models. They're they're usually aware of bias in standard task-specific AI, but in the world of large language models, they're not as familiar with where bias might creep in there. There's sort of vague aware that the thing 
think is not completely reliable, doesn't always give out true information, can make up information and make up citations for that false information. And they're not really sure how to how to deal with that. So I would say that they're reasonably aware of the issues, but they're not particularly aware or know how to handle it. How do they handle it? I don't know. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, they, you know, there's a lot of things to do. So what I do with all my clients is, you know, we help them build AI ethical risk programs that are enterprise-wide. And what's happened with generative AI is that there's a sort of front-loading of a quick and dirty approach. So usually, in an ideal world, our clients would take a very systematic, top-down approach, comprehensive, very thoughtful strategy, you know, implementation, metrics, KPS, and you still need all that stuff. But what we're seeing is that our clients want to do that, but the sort of opening move is, first, what do we do about generative AI? And the answer is a couple things. Number one, whatever you're going to do right here, right now, it's necessarily going to be quick and dirty. It's not going to be as systematic as you'd like. Things could potentially fall between the cracks, but you should do something because it does take time to create, design, roll out, educate an entire enterprise about your enterprise-wide AI ethics program. So number one, I think that organizations need to specify what their ethical nightmares are, get really clear on, okay, if things go bad for us in the way that we might use AI, generative AI in particular, what does that look like? Let's get specific about this. And one nice thing about this is that I find that leaders are quite prepared, and junior people for that matter, are quite prepared to articulate what those ethical nightmares might look like. So we talk about ethical risk and reputational risk, and then people get sort of scared off, or they're not really sure what to do with ethics. It's squishy, it's subjective. But if you say, tell me your ethical nightmares, those could actually be quite specific, quite vivid, and they're relatively easy to articulate. So that's one thing, is you articulate the ethical nightmares for the organization. And for some, like a social media company, the spread of misinformation is going to be a major, it's going to be high up on your list. But if you're a financial services company, then the spread of misinformation is sort of not within your purview. So that's not going to be your ethical nightmare. So it's important to tailor the articulation of the nightmares to your actual industry, your organization, etc. Secondly, devise a relatively easy way of identifying or thinking about for a particular use case of generative AI, the probability or likelihood that it might result in one of those nightmares happening. So maybe it's a checklist, maybe it's a score sheet, maybe it's, you know, answer these seven questions. If the answer is yes, then go to step two, right? But something more robust than a gut check, but something quick and efficiency to a gut check of, is this a dangerous use for our purposes? And in some cases, it could be quite simple. So you might think, for instance, one thing that would all automatically put it, and if you like a high risk category or in a potentially nightmare scenario category is we're using generative AI in a customer facing way. That might be an automatic, hold on a second. So you define the nightmares, relatively easy to do. Define a way of, or articulate a way that people can think about whether their use case might lead to one of those nightmares. And then three, create some kind of advisory board or risk board that when people in your organization, if you like, meet those criteria for potential nightmare, they go to that advisory board and that that board or risk board can say, that's okay, you can go do that or you can do that on the condition that X, Y, and Z or, you know, you can do that if you get the go-ahead from so-and-so, you know, relevant role, something along those lines so that those people can get quick guidance. Again, that's not a comprehensive approach, but it's quick and dirty and it's something that you can start. And then when you do go to build that more comprehensive ethical risk program, you've already got that as a sort of building block. So do you think uh, if some leaders are a little anxious, is it too late to take a wait and see approach? Is it just can't put the toothpaste back in the tube? You got to get on it now? 
No, I don't think that's right. There's a situation in which is the LLM genie out of the bottle? Is the large language model genie out of the bottle for society at large? Answer, uh-huh. yes. That ship has sailed. We can't. That's toothpaste that's out of the tube. Forget about it. But if you're a corporation and you're thinking about our uses for generative AI, no, the toothpaste is not out yet. There are surely people within your organization using it, but you can get a handle on it. You can get a grip on it. It's not too late. And even if it is too late for some use cases, which is, I still think, dubious, but even if that is the case, we're at the very beginning. And so there's lots of other kinds of use cases for generative AI that your employees haven't figured out yet, but they will. And for those sort of things, it's, you know, it's not it's not too late because it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, right now, obviously, a lot of the talk is about deep fakes, hallucinations, those concerns uh, in general society. Where it is right now, do the positives outweigh the negatives? It's too early to say. You know, I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, I've done a lot of reading, research, talking with people about large language models in the context of healthcare. And frankly, there looks like there's amazing opportunities to do a tremendous amount of good. Consulting an LLM, so long as it's been sufficiently tested, that's a massive asterisk or a massive caveat, can be greatly beneficial to, say, diagnosing people quicker, diagnosing a greater scope of people, so on and so forth. I mean, the, the set of medical knowledge that an LLM has just is the set of medical knowledge that humans have. So this thing is a pediatrician, a geneticist, an oncologist, an endocrinologist. It's an all the things. So the upside is potentially huge, literally life-saving. On the other hand, we have an election coming up. How is it going to be used? How is generative AI going to be used in elections? Right. Yep. You already mentioned deep fakes. There's the automated creation and spread of disinformation. So, okay, how do we weigh up the benefits and costs and say, is this net good? One, it's too early to tell. And two, I don't know. In a way, it's sort of like, that's not the right question. I mean, it's a reasonable question. It's not the right question because it's not something like, okay, we're going to add all this stuff up and we'll add up the good stuff, we'll subtract the bad stuff, and then we're good. That's not how it works. Let's take an organization, a Fortune 500 company, say, they could do a bunch of good, but then if they also accidentally use AI to discriminate against 100,000 women, you don't say, well, you know, net balance, you did good. No, no, no. You did something really wrong. You wronged those 100,000 women and the people that are associated with them, and you've done real damage to your brand as well. And now you face potentially regulatory and legal investigations and fines and lawsuits, et cetera. So the cost-benefit thing isn't quite right. It's more like, mm-hmm. what are the ways we can really go wrong, and what are we doing to stop those things from happening? And when it comes to regulation, what do you think regulation is going to look like? Is it going to be AI developers regulating themselves? Is it going to be some kind of government regulation or a mix of the two? It'll be a mix. I mean, we have the European Union moving forward with their AI Act. It just passed a significant hurdle. It still hasn't passed the final hurdle, and even once it does pass that hurdle, assuming that it does, and it looks likely, I would say, it's still not going to come into force for two years. There's also a lot of talk out of the White House lately about doing something. Chuck Schumer's talking a lot about AI regulations. There was an article, I think, yesterday that I read that Biden is considering various executive orders in relation to AI and safety. No one really knows what they're going to see. At the moment, all the articulations for the regulations, at least within the U.S., are extremely high level. You know, we're for safety and we're for fairness. So sort of very high level things that are not possible to really operationalize if they just stand at that very abstract level. We'll see stuff eventually. In New York City, there's a regulation that's anyone who's using AI within hiring decisions, that software has to undergo an independent third-party audit. So that's coming up. Exactly what those audits look like is still a little bit TBD. There's going to be a lot more requirements. When we do see regulations coming into effect, I think we'll see a lot more by way of demands for transparency, documentation, that sort of thing. Is there a way to stop the bad actors? One of the people I spoke to gave a pretty good analogy where he said it's theoretically as powerful as nuclear. The difference is people can do this in their basement. A 13-year-old kid can do this in his mom's basement. Yeah. 
<laughs> that seems to me a bit extreme of an analogy. I don't think, you know, we have like 12-year-olds with, you know, uranium in, the, in their basement. So look, you know, one of the problems is, and this person is right, individuals can use this thing and it's not just organizations. So it's not just, you know, a massive corporation with very deep pockets who can throw data scientists at a thing and build something huge. So, you know, when it comes to things like the spread of the misinformation, that can be done seemingly quite low budget. You can generate fake stories, you can post them to social media, you can generate fake websites and fake video and fake images very easily. So, yeah, that's a real concern. I don't know, though, of anything substantive, legally speaking, that would stop those individuals from doing those things. And even if you did have laws or regulations that stop people from doing it, good luck stopping the person in Russia. What's a law against it in the U.S. going to do against the bad actor in Russia? The other thing to say is that our main problem is not, it depends on who the R is, I suppose, but there's a society problem about bad actors. Organizationally, if you're talking about AI and enterprise, for instance, or startups or anything like that, the problem there is not bad actors. It's just sort of, I don't know, accidental actors. It's people making certain kinds of decisions that they don't realize have ethical implications, that they're ethically and reputationally and potentially regulatory and legally risky. And so they just do these things. So for instance, Samsung, rather infamously, the people there started using LLMs and loaded onto it corporate data, data that's not supposed to be exposed, but it got leaked, it got exposed. So they weren't intending to do bad things. They're not bad actors in the traditional sense of, you know, someone who intends to do something that is clearly bad and they should know better. Maybe they should have known better, but they didn't have any bad intentions. They were just doing things and they they slipped up in a significant way. So bad actors are a big problem if we're talking about the risks of AI at a societal level, at the corporate level. There's a way in which it's scarier because it's not bad actors. I mean, corporations know how to say, don't sexually harass. The extent to which they enforce that is another question. Mm -hmm. But in principle, they know what to do. They know what a bad actor is. They know what the bad actors do. But with AI, they're trying to stop ethically bad things from happening that's not connected to the intentions of the actor. And this is a different kind of thing that they have to deal with. Interesting. You had a great article in HBR not long ago, Ethics in the Age of AI. And you said next generation technologies are poised to cause society shaking shifts at unprecedented speed and scale. Can you elaborate some of those societal shifts that you see coming? So what I see is that there's so much money being dumped into emerging technologies, and they're all sort of potentially disruptive in their own right, and then they get combined in various ways. AI is obviously the biggest thing right now, but there are other kinds of technologies, for instance, quantum computers, lots of money going in there, IBM, Google seemingly making massive strides, other organizations as well. And the way that I put it in the article is that, you know, if you think that today's computers process a lot of data and that AI processes a lot of data, you haven't seen anything yet. I mean, quantum computers process a quantity of data at a rate that makes current processing of data look like kindergartners counting on their fingers. So when you take more data and more data and more and more complex patterns, then the kinds of problems that we already see, for instance, with AI get combined with quantum and then they get exacerbated. It's gas on the fire. So for instance, the reason that we have black boxes, and maybe they're okay, there's lots to say about black box models. That's when we can't understand why an AI is producing the output that it is because it's recognizing a pattern in the data that's too complex for humans to understand. You know, it's like a 150-page math formula that we can't keep in our heads. Well, if you think 150 pages is difficult to keep in your head, try, you know, 10,000 pages of math formula, which is what quantum computers will allow us to do. So, and then there's other things like blockchain. Most people associate blockchain with cryptocurrency, but there's lots of money, lots of people trying to figure out non-crypto applications for blockchain. And then you take AR, VR. We just had Apple come out with their headset. And look, maybe that headset doesn't get used. Maybe it does. I don't know. But think about five years from now or 10 years from now, what Apple's going to come out with. I'm terrified of contact lenses and AR being embedded in contact lenses. And, you know, everyone's looking at something on their screen and you don't know if they're actually looking 
at you or something else, or we just have a sort of deterioration of a shared reality. We already have that with our information bubbles, and we have it just talking face to face. So it's not that I'm I have some phenomenal predictions about exactly how society is going to get shaken up. I just know that there's all this money going into these really powerful technologies. These technologies are built to scale. That's their point to have massive impact. I know that there's not a lot of if you like ethical due diligence going into the applications of these technologies. And so what do you think is going to happen? It's almost unimaginable that things don't go horribly wrong in some respect. Now, I'm not saying there aren't going to be really great innovations as well. I mentioned healthcare earlier. There can be things like precision medicine with quantum computers and, and AI. So there's potentially amazing things, but it seems impossible that there won't be the kinds of society shaking implications or impacts of emerging technologies. You know, that social media was the last one and all the other technologies, they're going to be cool. No, no, no negative impacts. No, we're going to see, we're going to see horrible things. Do you think it will be within our lifetime for you and me? I've yeah. got eight-year-old nieces, you know, so I wonder when I was eight years old, Yeah, we didn't have internet. We had just started getting dial up, you know, didn't have cameras mm. everywhere. So yep. what are they going to see in that period of time? And are we going to be around to see it? Again, I can't predict this is what things will sure. look like. I mean, mm-hmm. I'd probably, you know, be more salacious and engaging or something like that. I'd probably get more attention if I were really specific <laughs> about what's going to happen, but then I'd be lying, which I won't do. Um, so I don't know. I, I just don't, I don't know what it's going to look like. You just see all the ingredients mm-hmm. and you know that something's going to be made. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to be big, you know? So I, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a predictor about what exactly is going to happen. I'm just going to predict that money will keep getting poured into these technologies. They will become increasingly powerful and that we're not going to design and develop and deploy those things in a systematically ethically safe way because no one has virtually no one has their eye on that ball. So of course right. things are going to go wrong. Mm-hmm. I was just over the weekend watching some of the early episodes of Black Mirror. Yeah. And I realized that the show's 10 years old. Mm. It holds up pretty well. Yeah. A lot of times uh, when you see older shows about technology, it looks silly, but yeah. uh, it's interesting how well it's held up. The Contact Lens episode, I get scared of Contact Lens precisely because of that Black Mirror episode. That's I mean, what made me think of it. Yep. I saw that Black Mirror episode and I thought, holy shit, that's legit. That's really good. And there are people researching now how to put augmented reality chips and uh, visuals into contact lenses. I mean, this is this is crazy stuff. This sure. is really, it's really scary stuff. And, uh, you know, our government is way behind. The U.S. doesn't have what Europe has, which is GDPR, which is mm-hmm. supposed to protect data privacy. There's a debate about the extent to which that's been effective, although I actually think that we still don't know yet because they're really just beginning to enforce it in a meaningful way. But yeah, you know, really scary stuff, and our government is currently ill-equipped to handle it. The only silver lining, or if I could give a little bit of hope, is that there does seem to be bipartisan support for doing something, which is rare. Yeah, sure. But the fact that there's a bipartisan support, that it's not, it doesn't seem to be a Republican-Democrat issue. I mean, I spent some time on, for instance, uh, Fox News. You know, I've been on various shows on Fox, um, I don't know, half a dozen times or so, and it's not a right-left issue. You know, when the kinds of questions that they're raising, the kinds of stories that they're reporting on, they have not been, at least when I've been involved, they haven't been political in nature. It's just straight up, this is bad for everybody. And so one of the things that I highlighted in that HBR article that you referenced is, I don't care if you're Patagonia or Hobby Lobby. These are ethical problems for every citizen and every organization. It's interesting. So I like to get to a lightning round. These are questions I didn't prep you on. Just kind of want to get the first thing that comes to your mind. Ready, go. In your opinion, what is today's single most consequential technology? I mean, you got to say it's it's something like generative AI for the very reason that it is general purpose. So who knows what people are going to get up to with it? Right. What technology that did not exist when you were growing up do you think is taken for granted today? Uh, I mean, uh, the internet? I mean, do we take the internet for granted? I guess we take it for granted because whenever we're in a place and there's no internet, we're like, what the hell? How is there no internet? It's not possible. So, yeah, I suppose the internet. Okay. Looking back in 20 years, what emerging technology 
technology do you think will have had the biggest impact on society? So I'm fast forwarding 20 years and looking back to now. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be AI plus quantum. Okay. We haven't seen quantum really in action yet, but it seems like once that really gets going, it brings its own problems like de-encryption. There's a massive security problem with quantum computers, which is that it seems like they're able to break 99.9% of the encryption that's on the internet right now. And so companies, governments don't update their security protocols to be quantum resistant or quantum proof. Oh my God. And then, like I said earlier, AI is about looking at patterns in data. Quantum allows it to crunch more data. So I think there's going to be some point at which quantum and AI gets married, mm-hmm. and that's going to be a big deal. Yeah, that's one of those things that bends my brain a little bit. I think um, I'm a relatively smart guy, but the quantum thing, yeah. it hurts my head to try to picture what that is. So someone gave me, this guy Brian Lanahan, who I had on my podcast, also called Ethical Machines, he put it really nicely, which is something like, all right, so look, here's how current day computers work. You know, the computer that you and I are speaking on right now. It performs processes, and it's like a, a mouse going through a maze. Mm-hmm. It tries this way, doesn't work, comes back, tries the next route, doesn't work, and so it's sequential. Now, if you turn up the volume on the speed of that, you get it that mouse going down those paths faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. With a quantum computer, the mouse goes down all those routes at the same time. So it's not sequential, it's all at the same time, and so finds the way out of that maze a hell of a lot faster because it's performing all those operations simultaneously. I like that analogy because it gives you a sense that when we're talking about quantum computers, however it is that they work, the underlying physics behind it, it's not just faster current day computers because current day computers are sequential. It's not just speeding up that sequence. It's doing all the things at the same time, which allows it to explore many more possibilities, look at much more data, so on and so forth. It's pretty amazing. It really is. Oh, it's bonkers. It's bonkers (laughs) stuff. Yeah. So the speed with which we've seen AI develop in the last nine months or so, with that pace and the ethical questions that have already come along, is it more of the same questions that are just going to be more urgent, kind of alluded to this before, or is there just going to be more and more concerns piling on top in the next nine months? Uh, It's hard to say. I mean, I I like to say that it's not that AI or the technologies give rise to new ethical risks. We, humanity has done a really good job of exploring the set of all possible (laughs) ethical risks. We've done it all. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've done all the bad things. It's that these new technologies give rise to new sources for familiar ethical risks. So AI didn't invent bias, of course, but it's a new source of bias or discriminatory treatment. AI, we had violations of privacy before AI, but now we have a all new way, uh, brand new, to violate people's privacy. So it's not that we didn't have the spread of misinformation before, but now we have a new source, not only the creation of it, but the rate at which it can create that misinformation. And then things like, it, a lot depends on the nature of the technology. So for instance, large language models, as people like to put it or anthropomorphize it, they hallucinate, mm-hmm. which is just an, a sort of nice way of saying that they output false information. And that's because large language models are just their next word predictors or next paragraph predictors. They're not tied into reality in any meaningful way. And so you get, as one person put it, it's a language model, not a knowledge model. And so, of course, you're going to get false outputs. And so a lot will depend in the next nine months about are there going to be new technologies that come out and how do they operate? Is it generative AI that deals with language that's not trained the way that OpenAI trained theirs in such a way that it is tied into reality in some way? We don't know. Right. Does it concern you thinking about the large language models teaching each other? Um, I don't know. I mean, I've seen this thing around, like, all the content's going to get worse and worse as we get mediocrely written BS output by these LLMs ingested for the next LLM training's data set. And so we're going to get this cycle of, I don't know. I mean, I see that's probably a concern, but Mm -hmm. I also think that the data scientists are pretty clever, and they'll think about how to root out that kind of thing, and they'll do an imperfect job, but it won't be a a non-job. We're going to 
see improvement. It's almost impossible that we don't see improvement. I mean, one of the latest suggestions I've seen for how to make these things not hallucinate or output false information is to have them debate each other, so to speak. So you ask a question, and then one LLM behind the scenes, the user doesn't see this, outputs something, and the other LLM critiques it, and then the critique goes back and forth until you arrive at some kind of equilibrium, and then it outputs something to the user. So what you see is the output of something that has been quote-unquote vetted by other LLMs, which it actually is, in other contexts anyway, it's pretty decent at. There are contexts in which, for instance, you give an LLM a question about diagnosing a patient, mm -hmm. and it might make a mistake, and you say, no, I think you made a mistake, and then it says, no, I didn't, I'm right, you're wrong. But then you ask another, as it were, I'm anthropomorphizing, you ask another LLM, hey, how did this first LLM do? It can find the mistake in a way that the first one couldn't, which is bizarre. So there's talk about, you know, having these things sort of duel each other than output. I mean, there's cost to that, there's a lot of processing power that it takes to run these things. So if you do that every time behind the scenes, we're talking about a lot of processing power, which means a lot of electricity, which means a bigger environmental impact than it already has, which means it's also just more expensive to run those things, which starts curtailing business possibilities. Right, right. Nonetheless, they'll figure out other ways and we'll continually see improvements. We're not ever going to see perfection, but the mistakes are pretty well identified and they'll do better. Are they going to plot with each other against humanity? There, I think you would need bad actors. There is a bad actor worry that they will, okay, what's the best way to undermine a democracy? And then they get some LLMs to debate each other and then sure. what's the appropriate strategy, what's the appropriate tactic? And they, you know, mm -hmm. comes up with some pretty good ideas and then they execute on it. So there's, there's a possibility, but I'm not worried about LLMs forming their own desires and goals. That's the thing that everyone, they talk about intelligence. Right. And so you think, oh, it's intelligent. Now it's going to have its own goals. Mm -hmm. It's a very controversial conception of what it looks like to be a creature like us with goals. So here's a standard view of what human psychology looks like. Pretty standard. And I think in psychology, it's pretty standard in philosophy. There are pushbacks, but sure. your mind, your intellect provides you a map of the world, right? You can conceive of the world. You can understand the world. So it gives you that map, but it's your desires that tell you where you want to go mm -hmm. or that set the destination for the map. Otherwise, you'd just be sitting there like an idiot. I got a map. Where do you want to go? I have no desires, right? And so you just don't go anywhere. Sure. And if you think about intellect as being the thing that gives you a grip on the world, but desires, what philosophers call non-cognitive states, are what set the goal. And these things don't have those non-cognitive desires. Then they might have a map about how to destroy the world or how to save the world, but they have no desires to push or pull them in either direction because that's just not the kinds of things that they are. Right, right. It's interesting. And I, I love we could go down these paths all day long. It's just it's so fascinating, not only to see what's happening, to speculate a little bit. You know, I think to realize that this is a shift in society at large that we probably haven't seen since the internet. Yeah, you know, in social media, it'll be nuts. There's no question. I mean, I don't know about next year. I can't I can't say it's going to be nuts within the next year. 10 years? 20 years? The kind of spend that we're talking about from when we were kids and then we didn't have internet until now? Yeah, who knows? It's going to be nuts. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a perfect place to end it. It's going to be nuts. If people want to find you, if uh, organizations want to hire you, where can they find you? There's my personal website, readblackman.com, and then my business is called Virtue, virtueconsultants.com. Those are the two places to, to find me, reach out. I have my podcast, Ethical Machines, the book published by HBR, also called Ethical Machines. I'm on LinkedIn frequently. I'm around. And of course, I got to throw the plug in. We can find you at sternstrategy.com. Yep. Stern represents all my speaking gigs. Yep. We've got articles you've written, videos, and uh, like I said, it's just such fascinating stuff. Reed Blackman, I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. No, my pleasure. Thanks for the good questions. Our thanks to Reed Blackman. 
I'm Whitney Jennings from Stern Speakers and Advisors. Next time on Minds Worth Meeting, I'll be speaking with Harvard Business School professor Amy Edmondson, originator of the concept of psychological safety. Amy has spoken for and advised organizations of all sizes around the world about how they can ensure a work environment that is open, collaborative, and more effective overall. She'll talk to us about her brand new book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. Hear my conversation with Amy on the next episode of Minds Worth Meeting. Minds Worth Meeting is a production of Stern Strategy Group. Our hosts are Whitney Jennings and Justin Lewis. Alan Halimski is our video editor. The production team includes Kaylee Heverin and Meg Vierick. Whitney Jennings is Stern Speakers and Advisors Marketing Manager. And Brandon Pantano is our Digital Marketing Director. Join us next time for another episode of Stern Strategy Group's Minds Worth Meeting streaming on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.